8, would you remain standing for the reading of the word of the Lord from Psalms 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob and whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food for the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Andy. Good to see everybody. Is it on? It is on. Microphone problems. It's on. Theoretically. No? Okay. Now it's on. Thank you, Nate. Good to see everybody yesterday. Uh, it's good to get together and see each other's faces without masks for a while and eat food. Beautiful day yesterday. Um, we'll hopefully continue to do that uh, as a quarterly every three months or so uh, down there at the barn. It's been a great place for us as a church to gather and share time and, and food. And yesterday we got to bless a few people who were just hanging around and share our Kona ice with them. And so that was fun uh, too, just to be able to have. And I saw a few of you having conversations with them. That's just a great another opportunity to be out in public and uh, invite people in, like we're talking about with hospitality. Um, let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll look at Psalm 146. Lord, we thank you that you made all things, and we thank you that someday you will put all things right, and I pray today as we contemplate uh, that uh, vision of you being uh, king of your kingdom, having no end, that you would enliven our hearts to believe it, uh, to trust you, and to be animated in our daily life, to be motivated by this knowledge and this vision of all that you are going to do. So we ask now that you would open our, our hearts and our eyes and our minds as we look into your word and we pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. So there's two famous uh, phrases that bracket a lot of famous stories. You know these. The first one is once upon a time. And then at the other end of the story is they lived happily ever after. So many fairy tales start with those brackets. I actually... If you've ever seen Shrek, you know that they did all these like plays, lots of really interesting, fun stuff about fairy tales buried in there. Um, but I had forgotten that the last line was, they lived ugly ever after. It's a little variation on, this, on this, uh, this final phrase of living happily ever after. And the reason why we have all these stories is because this idea of living happily ever after, you know, it's buried deep in us. This is what we all want. We want happily ever after. We want to, to, to move towards perfection. We want to know that the right will prevail that wrong will be 
punished, that guilt will be punished, that injustice will be done away with, you know, that the, the good guys will win. We want to know that, and so we tell all these stories where the good guys get to win, and then they live happily ever after. And a lot of us, in whether we know it or not, spend our lives chasing after happily ever after. We want the good life. We want a good ending. We want that to come to us as much as it, as it can. But every time we read a story where there's a happily ever after, for every happily ever after, there's someone who doesn't get a happily ever after. Right? When you think about these stories, I, think, I was thinking about Shrek, right? Shrek and, and, uh, and Fiona, is that the, the, the princess's name? They get their happily ever after. But, if, but not if you're Lord Farquaad, right? <laughs> Lord Farquaad doesn't get happily ever after. And in fact, to get happily ever after for Shrek, Lord Farquaad can't have happily ever after, right? It's like every story like this, every Disney movie, you're rooting for the good guys over against the bad guys. And if you were confused about who the bad guys were and who the good guys were, you would, you would experience the story very differently, right? Like if you thought while watching Shrek that Lord Farquaad was the good guy, the, the ending's going to take you by surprise. You're going to be very confused by the steps in the story. And I was reminded of, um, of the Harry Potter books where there's this character of Snape who's a very uh, complex, complicated character. You never really know whose side he's on. You don't know whether you're supposed to cheer for him or not. And every time he comes into a scene, you're like, do I like this guy or not? And there's this complexity and this confusion that's brought into the story because you don't really know whether he's a good guy or a bad guy. And if you think about your favorite story whether that's Shrek or, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia or Harry Potter. You think about these epic stories that begin with Once Upon a Time and end with Happily Ever After. If you think about being on the side of the bad guy, of Lord Farquaad or the White Witch or Lord Voldemort, it changes the way that the story feels dramatically. And I say all that to, to help us understand why this line that we're going to look at in the Creed is here, because the way that we imagine the end of the story dramatically shapes the way that we experience the story right now. Does that make sense? The, the, who you think the good guys are, how you think the end is going to happen, where you think this is headed, it's going to dramatically change and affect the way that you experience your life right now. How we imagine the end shapes our now dramatically. And so we tell stories to help us understand the end so that we can then be shaped in our now. G.K. Chesterton was a famous author, he wrote this about fairy tales. He said, fairy tales, this is an approximate quote, fairy tales do not tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. Right? It's helping children to imagine that there's a positive end to the story, that the good guys can win. So we tell ourselves stories that shape the way that we believe in the way that we live, that we believe that the dragon, whatever, the dra whatever a dragon we imagine to be there can be killed, and we tell stories to help us understand who that dragon is and how it can be killed and how the end will happen. We do this in small ways in our lives, but we also do it with the big story of the world. We're constantly understanding and interpreting and telling stories to help ourselves understand the trajectory of, of the world. What is happening? Where is this all headed? Why are we here? Where are we going? And this is why this series, the Creed series, we've called it God's Redemptive Story, because ultimately that's what the Creed is. It's an attempt to summarize the biblical story, which is a, a story that's supposed to animate our way of understanding and shape our way of understanding the world. And this final line here is about the end of the story. This line, it's not the final line in the Creed, but this final line in this section about Jesus is about the end of the story. Go ahead, Molly, and put it up there. 
These are the two creeds we've been looking at, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. We've walked through a lot of things about Jesus' life, and now we have these statements about Jesus that says, He will come again to judge the living and the dead and the apostles. And just slightly longer, in the Nicene Creed, says, He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. In my study this week, I came across this quote that I thought was really good. Because when we talk about the end of the world, that in theology language, that's called eschatology. You've probably heard that word before. And we typically think about eschatology as the study of the last things, the study of the end. But this is what this author says about eschatology or studying the last things. He says, the apostles, the writers of the Bible, understood eschatology not merely as talking about the future, but as a mindset for understanding the present. A mindset for understanding the present. And that's what I mean when I say that how we imagine the end shapes the way that we live right now. It's, it's a mindset that this sentence creates or is a mindset for the way that we understand and experience our life right now. And in the Christian story, there's a very definite, clear vision of what that end of the story is and what it looks like. And how we understand and know that end is going to dramatically change your life today. So I want to start just by digging into this for just a minute, just so we understand what the creed is claiming, what the Bible is claiming about the end. And then we're going to look at Psalm 146, and I want to see two big ways that that end should change the way that we live our daily lives right now. So we've walked through the creed so far. God Almighty created the world, and then we have all the things that the creed says about Jesus, that he's the Son of God, that he, for us and for our salvation, came down from heaven, became human, that he suffered and died, that he then rose again. And last week, Mike talked about how he ascended in human form and is now in the presence of God interceding for us. And that's where we ended last week. And now we have this final line that says, and now he, Jesus, will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now, don't mistake this, the shortness of this line for being unimportant. Especially in the, in the Nicene Creed, there's a lot of stuff about Jesus, and maybe this line gets lost. This is not an unimportant line. In fact, this may be the most important line in the whole story, the end of the story. His kingdom shall, shall have no end. Okay, that Jesus' work, when we talk about Jesus and what he did, we're not just talking about death and resurrection. The biblical story, that's actually a point in, in, in the past Whereas the biblical story is pointing toward this big, expansive, ongoing, never-ending future that Jesus is going to reign over as the king. And a great illustration I found this week when we think about the difference between the cross and the resurrection and this sentence, which is the end. It's like when you think about World War II, there was D-Day, the day that the Allies landed on the beaches of Normandy. And then there was a space of time during the war. And then there was V-Day, where the war ended. And maybe they didn't know it in the moment, but looking back now, we see that D-Day was the decisive moment in the war. It's the moment that Germany started to lose. But there's a space in between that decisive moment and the end of the war. And that space is the way that the scriptures describe where we live now. The decisive moment of Jesus landing on the shores of earth, as it were, taking, taking the fight to the continent in the metaphor. Jesus landed on earth. He did the thing he needed to do, but now there's a working out where we're waiting for victory day, for the end. This is this already, Jesus has already come, has already won the battle, but now there's a waiting, a not yet, that's to, that we're still living in. But in a very real sense, Jesus' coming, his death and resurrection and ascension is the beginning of the end. 
And we're now walking through this time waiting for the completion of this kingdom that will never end. I want to look, I want you to think about this line that says, he will judge the living and the dead. When we think about judges, we have judges in our society, they sit behind a bench with a black robe on and a gavel, or they're on TV, like Judge Judy, say and do crazy things. I don't know what you think of when you think of judges. But very reductionistically, we can oftentimes think of judges as sort of just deciding people's fate, making a yes or no decision. And we've ported that into our understanding of the gospel. And the the image I've had in my head all week, I said this in our sermon prep meeting, is this like that Jesus as a judge is kind of sitting, he's kind of a glorified like checker in at Disney World. He's kind of sitting in his little booth there and you come up with your ticket and you show him your ticket in the Disney World and he judges you by saying you can go in or you can't. And that's, I think, at least in a lot of conversations I've had, how people think about and understand Jesus' role as judge. That he's just sort of a glorified checker in at an amusement park, the amusement park of, of heaven. But that is such a reduced, minimalistic, not true understanding of what the scriptures talk about when they talk about judging and justice. A judge in the Bible is someone who executes justice, who brings salvation, who brings wholeness. You have to look at the book of Judges. The people in the book of Judges who were called judges were the people who went out and they redeemed Israel from their enemies, the people that had enslaved them. A judge is not somebody who just sits around and makes decisions. He's somebody who actually brings justice and wholeness into the world. And this small view of being a judge is kind of coupled with oftentimes our very small view of the gospel as just Jesus forgiving our sins. And this line helps us point a different direction, that the gospel, what we, what we celebrate here, why we believe in Jesus, is not simply to have our sins forgiven. That would almost be like saying that the, the point of marriage is to forgive your spouse for the things that they did before you met them. It's just so, it's, it's necessary, but it has very little to do with the active, positive wholeness that should come in marriage. And in fact, it becomes fairly man-centered instead of God-centered when we think of all of salvation in terms of forgiveness of sins. The creed and the scriptures teach us that for salvation is about God bringing perfection and justice into the world. That Jesus is a human king who will set all things right. That this great quote from Sam in Lord of the Rings that we talked about a few weeks ago, is, are all sad things going to come untrue? This is what this line is teaching us, that all sad things, all bad things, all wrong things will come untrue. One theologian says, where in the long run, everybody, good and evil alike, becomes known by his true name, where things are revealed, where all things are made new and right, where death and disease and miscarriage and evil and pain are gone, where we experience wholeness and restoration and salvation and a perfect king who rules over all things. This is the vision that the scriptures paint of the end. That the end of all things is the Jesus kingdom. Perfection, wholeness, and restoration. Now, if that's the end, that's the way that the scriptures and the creed talk about the end, why does that matter for right now? How should that shape the way that we exist in our daily lives right now? Because too often we talk about the end, we think about the end as out there. 
But if Jesus' death and resurrection was the beginning of the end, we live in the end, we're experiencing that this now, how should that affect us? This is where I want to look at Psalm 146 for the next few minutes. If we get the next, there it is, Psalm 146, 1 through 4. I want to draw two big consequences, two big things that are implications of this end of the story. If this really is the end of the story, if Jesus is really coming back to make all things new, to rule as a king over us and over the world, look at verse 3 here. The psalm says, I'll start at the beginning, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will sing praise to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. And then it says this, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in a human, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. So in the scriptures, the word salvation is sort of a shortcut word to talk about happily ever after, being redeemed, being restored, wholeness. That's how this verse right here connects to the line in the creed. When it says, his kingdom shall have no end, that's salvation. And when we read this, what it's saying is, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in a human, who there is no salvation in princes. And what does it mean by princes? Princes is simply talking about human means of achieving salvation, of achieving wholeness, of achieving the good life. The first thing we need to see is that if we really believe that Jesus' kingdom is the end, then we have to order our personal lives around Jesus' salvation. And what this verse highlights is that we often don't do that. There are lots of other places in which we put our trust. There are lots of other kinds of salvation that we spend our lives seeking after. There's lots of other kinds of peace and shalom that we are running after that dominate our waking and our living and our going to sleep. There's lots of other salvations that are promised to us. Right? And if Jesus is the only way of salvation, then our entire approach to finding salvation needs to be tethered to him. Once you understand, as you read the Harry Potter books, that Harry Potter is going to win, you will do everything you can to be attached to him because he's going to win. And so if we understand and know that Jesus' kingdom will come, we should be making every effort to attach ourselves to his salvation and put off our attempts at seeking salvation in other places. Kevin Van Hooser is a great... Um, author, he says, there's only one gospel, there's only one good news, there's only one, one kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, but there is unfortunately an abundance of fake news, bogus messages about the good life, counterfeit gospels. Every day when you get up and read the news and walk out your door, there are other things claiming to give you salvation, other things claiming they can offer you shalom, that they can offer you happily ever after, and you know what? We believe them all the time, and they begin to dominate the way that we live our lives, and we're on a track that's not leading us toward the kingdom of God. Let me give a few examples. There's maybe the, the most obvious examples have to do with other religions, right? We have religions that teach that the best thing, the best hap- happily ever after is kind of drifting off into nirvana, right? That's, a, that's an alternative salvation. That's the best thing that's happily ever after. There's various versions of Christianity that talk about heaven that's sort of up there. You know, I've, I've mentioned this a few times where it's just sort of floating out in the clouds and we just go to disembodied happiness. That's, a, that's, not, that's very different from Jesus' kingdom. There's 
humanism, which teaches that the happily ever after is sort of humanity arriving at some sort of perfection, perfectible state, or Mormonism that teaches that each of us can grow up into our own gods and live on our own planet. And there's all kinds of, those are maybe the obvious ones. And for those of us who claim Jesus, we're like, okay, we don't need those. We know, we know to reject nirvana as a happy ending. But there's other things that grab us and get a hold on our hearts a lot more subtly than that. Let me give you two big examples. One is, is in politics. There's different versions of this depending on sort of what your preferences are. But there's sort of a nationalistic version, an American nationalism version of this good life where Salvation is kind of painted as a world where Americans have their way and everyone else has something less, where my culture is preserved and my way is able to be you know, executed, where I get what I want and I don't have to deal with things that I don't like. Unfortunately, a lot of Americans, a lot of Christian Americans have, seeming, have seemed to bought into this, that the good life exists in preserving or protecting or developing or growing our country into something strong. That's, a, that's an alternative salvation. It's an alternate way to get shalom. On the other side, you have sort of progressivism, progressive versions of salvation where if, you know, if we, there's certain cultural issues or certain justice issues or certain things that if we pursue these, then we can kind of make it through. It's very humanistic. We can achieve what we want to as humans. Or through the government, we can build a perfect society. Right? There's an American uh, uh, laws in the past called the Great Society. Yes, you know this? And new proposals now, not called the Great Society, but similarly oriented. Through the government, we can achieve perfection. We can achieve the good life. We can help people live the way that they should. And th- these are different versions of salvation, and they want us to trust. They ask us to trust and believe that through them we can have something good we can achieve you know happily ever after there's another one i was came across this week and i just wanted to highlight this because i think it's it's worth thinking about and i think that many of us are buying into this on a regular basis and this is sort of this idea the idea of wellness i was talking to allison in text about this two weeks ago the idea of well apparently wellness was not a word that like anybody used until 40 years ago in the english language a very new concept wellness defined as this like high quality of life, right? that if you do certain things and follow certain diets and work out with certain devices, and that you can sort of achieve the best quality of life. And it's held out as if this is the best thing that there is to offer, is coming to have quality of life, wellness and fitness and health, sort of come to self-actualization. And when you get into these things, CrossFit's a great example where when you, when you talk to somebody who goes to CrossFit and is very engaged in, in CrossFit life, it's very interesting to listen to them talk because there's a specific language that they use and there's a specific rituals that they participate in and specific morals that the community has and specific people that they will associate with. It sounds an awful lot like a church. Right? It's a religious thing. It becomes a religious thing, health and wellness and seeking, whether that's by dieting, or there's all kinds of versions of this. But this idea that the best thing we can do is sort of achieve the highest quality of life. And that if you achieve quality of life that you're satisfied with, you've arrived. And I think maybe we wouldn't say that that's the good life, but we still find ourselves seeking after that and believing that if we don't have that, we have some sort of subpar 
existence, we begin to worship our own selves, right? Worship our own sort of self-actualization. There's a version of this in healthcare where we're trying to beat death. We can get the right medicine and we can get the right this or that. We can outlive death. And that's why I love this verse. It says, when his breath departs, it's not if, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. Human beings are going to die. And when they die, the creed tells us that Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead, to bring wholeness and shalom to all people at all times, living or dead. Van Hooser again says, to the extent that wellness has become an ideal picture that orients people's hopes and lives, it is an American idol. It's a thing that we in our society seek after. If that doesn't describe you, it describes a lot of people in the, in the world that you inhabit, people that you know who really truly believe, whose hopes and dreams and daily lives are shaped by achieving wellness because that's the best that they can hope for. Over against that, we have the creed's declaration that he will come again to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. That salvation is found in Jesus' kingdom. Ephesians 2.14 says, he himself is our wholeness, our wellness, our shalom, our peace. He himself, Jesus. That true peace and shalom, to really achieve what life is about, to understand it, to thrive in this world, is to live in accordance with the truth about Jesus. If Jesus' kingdom is the end, then right now, every single moment, every single day of our lives has to be oriented around and by and towards Jesus. That his story is the proper context for us to understand and be moving towards shalom. That's why we're studying the creed. That's why we're talking about, that's why every Sunday we gather to rehearse this story because this story is the thing that points to the, to the way that the world actually ends in Jesus' kingdom. The first way that this shapes our current lives is that we need to be aware of and looking out for alternate salvations that grab our attention. Right? How are you pursuing success that may or may not be attached to Jesus? What, what alternate salvations, what alternate versions of the good life are attractive to you? That you're like, I, if I can just get this or I can just have this or if this part of my life, this relationship in my life were restored, that would be the good life. There's these things that we set up that we spend our lives seeking after trying to get to, not realizing that we're missing the point. And the culture around us is very happy to try and tell us what we should be seeking after. Are we aware of it? It's a great community group discussion question. What things do you find yourself drawn to? What versions of the good life are you drawn toward? We need to go back and read the Gospels. We need to be familiar with the story of the Scriptures. We've oftentimes talked about the Bible Project. Go and listen to the videos. Saturate yourself in the story of Jesus and what he is doing. Our personal Lives must be oriented around Jesus' salvation, not all the other false substitutes, if this really is true. But the other part of this, the second implication here, is that this is not just, the gospel's not just a personal thing. The gospel's just not about you and your self-actualization. It also has social implications. Look at the next section in this psalm. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, 
who keeps faith forever. Now listen carefully. Look at the characters involved in this. Who executes justice. Executes justice. Remember, that means bring shalom and peace and restoration. Who executes shalom for the oppressed. Who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. In the scriptures, that's the righteous are those who are in right relationship with themselves and God and the world. The Lord watches over the sojourners and he upholds the widow and the fatherless. The way of the wicked he will bring to ruin. Justice in scripture, when it says he will come to judge the living and the dead, is not purely punitive, but positive. It's, again, bringing shalom. I'm just going to read Isaiah 32, but you can read it later. Isaiah 32, 16 to 20, describes the positive things that will come when justice is executed. And look carefully at the beneficiaries of that justice. The fatherless, the oppressed, the hungry, the prisoners, the blind, those who are bowed down. In Jesus' kingdom, justice and shalom goes to these people. And if we are living in God's kingdom and oriented towards the kingdom of God at the end, our social lives need to be oriented around Jesus' values. This is what Jesus values. This is how his shalom comes into the world. These are the people that he loves. Mark 1, we looked at this. Jesus announces, he comes, he sets his foot on the shores, and he says, the kingdom of God is here. And friends, this is how the kingdom of God works. This is the ethics of God's kingdom. Spend some time in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We don't have time to look at all of these, but just listen. This is Jesus' manifesto about what his kingdom is like. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And Jesus goes on for three chapters talking about the values of his kingdom. And in the middle of that, he says, this is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How does the kingdom of God look? Justice for the oppressed. Food for the hungry. Setting the prisoners free, opening the eyes of the blind, upholding the widow and the fatherless. If we believe that Jesus' kingdom it has come and will be the end, we need to be animated. Our lives need to be oriented, organized around the values of God's kingdom. These are the values of God's kingdom. And the church, we Christians, not least of all, are absolutely guilty of embracing American justice. American justice is liberty and justice for all. 
Equal opportunity. You know what equal opportunity means? Success for those with wealth, talent, talent, and power. That's what equal opportunity means, right? If I have equal opportunity but I have no talent, wealth, or power, if I'm a prisoner or if I'm a widow or if I'm a sojourner, I don't, it doesn't matter if I have opportunity, right? And we've embraced this ideal that what we can do is sort of demand our rights and just let everyone else lie. And God says in his kingdom, that's not how my kingdom works. My kingdom is a kingdom that brings shalom to those who don't have it. Justice is not about equality and equity and fairness. It is about that, but it's, that's like the most basic version. Justice is about shalom coming to those who don't have justice. We see that. That's how the kingdom of God works. And if we believe in the kingdom of God, if we live in the kingdom of God, then our lives ought to be oriented around bringing shalom where it is not found. For the downtrodden and the poor and the sick and the weak, the orphan, the widow, the slave, the immigrant, the drug addict, people who do not have what we have. This is dramatically different from the American ideal of justice. The good guys are not the self-made men and women who run the world. The good guys are these people who are associated with Jesus by faith. And we are called as kingdom citizens to demonstrate our kingdom citizenry by orienting our lives around the values of Jesus' kingdom because his kingdom will have no end. So we can't say we know Jesus and then violate basic kingdom ethics. Right? This, I wrestled with this sermon all week because this is hard because I don't do this. I, I love being a middle-class white American. In, in the history of the world... I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth, right? And without being overly general, most of you too. And so it's easy for us to embrace American justice, fairness, equity, equal opportunity. That's not what the Bible talks about when it talks about justice. That's not what it means when it says Jesus will come to judge. Jesus is not going to come and judge the American way. He's going to come and judge the Jesus way. Jesus' kingdom is upside down, right? And so our church, us, our families, we have to seek, if we believe in the kingdom of God, if we live in the kingdom of God, we have to embody those kingdom values as a people, as individuals, as families, as a church, as community groups. Not just by doing things to help people, but actually embodying the values of the kingdom of God. We treat people differently. We see them as God sees them. I would encourage you, go read the Sermon on the Mount tonight. Go read Matthew 13. Jesus tells a bunch of parables and says the kingdom is like, and he explains what the kingdom is like. And we should expect that as we read those and think about those and embrace those, we're going to have a lot of dissonance with our culture. We're going to have a lot of dissonance with our political parties. We're going to have a lot of dissonance with our media outlets. We have to be aware and ready for that because there's no one that fully embodies the kingdom of God in culture. So how does this impact your neighborhood life and how does it impact your family life and how does it impact your work life? Are you bringing the values of the kingdom of God into every sphere that you go into? And the beauty of it is that even though we're called to do that, 
the next line in the psalm is true. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. Look, it's not our job to bring about God's values. He's going to do that, right? Harry Potter is going to win. You're either helping him, participating, receiving that, or you're not. That is the happily ever after. If we believe that, that's how it dramatically shapes our seeking after success and salvation and how we embody our social lives as we go through the world. Happily ever after, according to the creed, is Jesus' kingdom. May that vision shape our now. May we imagine that, think about it, look at it, know it, be immersed in the story of Jesus so that we are participating in a kingdom of God that will have no end. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came uh, down from heaven for us, that you took on flesh for us and for our salvation. We thank you that you died to pay the penalty, to receive, to bear the penalty of the brokenness in the world, that you rose to conquer death and defeat Satan, that you ascended in glory to receive power from on high. And that one day you will come to bring about full peace and shalom and harmony and justice in the world. And that you as our human king will rule over a remade earth in perfection. That all we long for and all we hope for and all we dream will be true. And that the only reason that we can't is because we don't have minds big enough to comprehend it. That anything that we lose is only because it's replaced by something ten times better. Give us a vision of your kingdom that drives our, our daily life, to love people the way you love them, to embody your values, to receive your salvation, to put off the things that are not part of your kingdom. Transform us as we uh, look at and receive and participate in your kingdom that will have no end. In your name we pray.